Good morning, everyone. It is Thursday morning, 11 o'clock, and I think I might even popped in just a minute early. So I'm going to give you time to get settled and start grabbing a cup of coffee or whatever it is you would like to drink as we prepare this morning. Um, in a little different setting, as you can see, uh, this morning I'm in my counseling office going live uh, from the counseling office here in Wichita. And uh, I was trying to study at home. You know, this is since the whole pandemic started. I, uh, I had started doing Facebook Live and really have enjoyed that and I've loved how it spreads out to so much of the world and uh, has really increased who's been able to be a part of the Bible study. And uh, so as I got up this morning, we're, we're having a new roof put on the house and uh, I just, I, I couldn't study. It was just all this hammering and nails and, and, and I don't mind studying where there's some noise, but that is a lot of repetitious hammering and noise. So, I thought to myself, you know, I'll go to the counseling office and I'll study. So I don't know if you can hear it in the background. So I've been in here the last few hours just getting prepared for our study in Luke chapter 6. And uh, let me let me turn this up a little and see if you can hear it. I have, I have my study music on. Can you hear it? I love this music. Um... Pat Dorset, thank you for tuning in today. Cecil, Cindy, thank you for coming in. This is the music that's playing. I wanted you to hear a little bit of it. It's it's called Sacred Treasures. It's a it's a it, from a, a CD from years ago that I got. It's called Sacred Treasures, and it's it's actually an acapella men's the bulgarian men's choir singing sacred treasures of the russian orthodox church and i'm telling you it is just so calming and peaceful and worshipful there is absolutely nothing better to put on in the background to study the word of god than that stuff it is it is powerful uh, and i a lot of it is uh, different versions of the Lord's Prayer. Of course, I don't know a word of what they're saying because I don't, I don't know Russian or Bulgarian, but it, it is powerful, beautiful, sacred music. So I'll turn it down here as we're getting started and uh, just want to uh, have you open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6 this morning. Um, thought I'd get you acquainted a little bit with my counseling office this morning before we start as you're getting your cup of coffee this morning. My coffee, because I don't have, I actually have a coffee maker here and it's broken, so I couldn't brew any fresh. I picked up a cup of Quick Trip on the way in. I'm not a big uh, Quick Trip coffee drinker. I used to be, but I kind of like, good morning, Sylvia, I kind of like something a little stronger than what they have. But they, they do have, they had a Peruvian blend that was new to me, so I put half of that in with my decaf, cheating there. I know my cardiologist doesn't watch this Bible study, so I'm cheating, needed a little extra. Pick me up there with my caffeine. But I wanted to introduce you to my, uh, my counseling office today. So we're here, I'm gonna pick up my camera and just see if I can move it around here and show you a little bit. I don't know if I can actually flip this around to show you what, what we're looking at, but uh, let me try. Yeah. Okay. So there's the doorway <laughs> and the studio is all set up. We've got our light ring going uh, with, uh, I've, I've got some, uh, I've got some artwork on the wall here. This is, this is a photograph of a lighthouse, you know, with all the things, the glare, you can't see it, but it's beautiful. 
This is a photograph, two of which I have in my office, that was by uh, taken by Dr. Merrill Thomas, a dear friend of many years and an incredible, uh, he's, his physician was his vocation, but photography was definitely his avocation. He is so good. And so that's of, of uh, Harbor Lights in a uh, lighthouse on the coast of Maine. And we have our, uh, here in the counseling office, I have, I keep a bottle of water you see back here from the Jordan River that I consider a holy water that we use sometimes in, in prayer or just anointing. Um, and, and then some books, of course. But here's the other picture. This is what my desk looks at. Okay, so here's my desk. And uh, here's, here's, here's the desk. Here's the, the brain center uh, of what I try to study in, when I'm in the office, uh, the counseling office. And there's another picture. This is actually a picture Merrill Thomas took of stained glass window of the Good Shepherd in St. Anthony's Church here in Wichita, the actually the oldest church in Wichita, St. Anthony's Catholic Church. Good morning, Judith. Good to see you. And so beside it, there is, you'll see if you look really close, you see these kind of, see these kind of uh, pictures with these frames around them that are the stations of the cross in, in that church there. They depict the 14 stations of the cross. I have one, but that's not actually one from that church. This is just one I found in a, it, actually in just like a thrift store once. Uh, and that's a picture of Mary, uh, the mother of uh, Jesus, holding the Christ child, surrounded by the cherubs and the angels. So kind of Mary, Queen of Heaven type picture. Uh, so, And then here I have uh, something very special to me. This was given to me by the church in San Antonio as I was leaving as their pastor. And it's Romans 8, 28, wonderful scripture in little kind of metal letters, raised letters on, on a parchment that's just beautiful to me. Got a, a mirror and, and a clock. And here, just two bookshelves here. I have a couple of paintings, a bookshelf there and a bookshelf there, both in, in, in each corner. In the middle, of course, is a sofa. Just It's a really comfortable little office um, for counseling. This is where I do pastoral counseling. And uh, or will will do pastoral counseling if we ever get past these uh, pandemic rules of not having people sitting down face to face. But this is uh, so I've had to do some of it outside in different places. But the, there are two other Christian therapists here in the office that that are gracious to to house me. And this is two paintings that are very special to me. You can see the little white church in the paintings. There are paintings done by a lady that was in the church. Uh, her name was. Uh, Ruth Hudson of Blessed Memory. She's gone to be with the Lord. But in the church in San Antonio, she gave me these. Uh, they're actually, the church is a little Lutheran church that sits on the grounds of the LBJ Ranch in Fredericksburg, Texas. Church where he apparently went to church when he was a boy. So those are special paintings. And here, let me show you something special right here on this shelf. This is, this framed piece right here, it says Service of Remembrance, Boston. And NFDA 2017, that's the National Funeral Directors Association International Convention in 2017, in which I was blessed and honored to be the chaplain for the whole week's proceedings and got to plan a service of remembrance for 6,000 funeral directors. It was an amazing experience. And, and you see on it, that's artwork that was done. I give a shout out to Tracy Holderman here in Wichita. He's a incredible graphic artist. He designed that. 
uh, Ashley Cozine, the owner of the Cozine Memorial Group, uh, and I, who uh, he was president of the NFDA at that time and uh, national president. And we designed that as an ecumenical service of remembrance. So you see a Jewish menorah, you see a kind of an, a Russian cross. This is the, the Jewish menorah. This is a traditionally called a Russian or Orthodox cross, a crucifix of Catholic symbolism, and then a Celtic cross of kind of an ancient Protestant heritage. Uh, so four different streams of the great faiths that come together, the, the Judeo-Christian faith. And uh, of course, sitting right beside it on the shelf was the book I put together for that very, uh, I had to get it out for that very uh, convention, uh, A Presence in the Dark, Finding Hope in Death. And uh, so a little bit about some of the treasures I have here in, in my office. I love this little preacher. My dear friend Joyce Williams gave this to me. Isn't that a cool guy just preaching the gospel in his collar and his robe? I, I can relate to that. I, I love that uh, coffee cup from San Antonio. So anyway, that's the office. So you kind of know where I'm at. Now we're back. Let me get this set back up. And hopefully you've got your Bibles open to, to Luke chapter 6. And if you have a prayer card with you, take that out. And let's begin this morning with our prayer before the study of Scripture. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies. And unto you we give all glory and praise together with our Father, who is from everlasting and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thanks for praying that, uh, that little prayer with me. If you're new today to the Bible study, there is a copy of that in the photos section of Brad Rally Ministries' Facebook page. Feel free to click on that, print one out. I love it. It's ancient, like 4th century ancient. Uh, St. John Chrysostom was the author of it. Uh, and so, give it to you to pray every week before we study Scripture. Well, let's look today at Luke chapter 6. We're starting a new chapter. We're seeing the tension mount between Jesus and the Pharisees. They are literally watching his every move at this point. Hi, Beverly. Thanks for joining. And Lenora, great to see you. I probably missed some others. Hello to everyone who will ever watch this later on. I know there are many who watch it later on in other time zones and other places around the world. And I'm so thankful for that. Um, but we're really walking. Luke is walking us through the ministry of Jesus, the early days of the ministry of Jesus. The conflict with the Pharisees came fairly quickly. And we saw in chapter 5 how the, uh, we saw how the particular uh, Pharisees were uh, really on to Jesus. They were, they were on to his back about he's not fasting right. He, he says he's forgiving people's sins and only God can do that. And he's healing people. It, it, it's, they cannot believe their eyes. And, and so when we get to Luke chapter 6, we're going to look this morning at, at the first 11 verses. Brian, good to see you, my brother. Great to have you with us. We're going to look at the first 11 verses of Luke chapter 6, and we're going to see 
two incidences in which Jesus has conflict with these Pharisees, both of which happen on a Sabbath. And before our hour is done today, I'm going to share with you what I believe the Sabbath is really all about and what the Sabbath should be in our lives. But I'll save that till a little bit later. Let's look at the word of the Lord today. So reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence? which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also giving it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, when he entered the synagogue and taught, a man was there whose right hand was withered, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, and so that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and he stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And he looked around on them all and he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Wow, there is, this is an incredible encounter, uh, two incredible encounters that we want to just kind of take them as they come here. First, let's talk about the, the walking through the grain fields. Now, if, if we understand the Mosaic law, the law was given that, of course, you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, which again was Friday night at sundown to Saturday night at sundown. That's the, the Jewish Sabbath. And Sherry, thanks for joining in today. And, and they weren't supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Now I'm going to get another copy of the scripture out here because I want to be able to turn and read a few things uh, with you. And, and if we look back into uh, that scripture, what we will find is this whole setup, this whole encounter with Jesus and his disciples that the Pharisees are so mad at him for doing what was, quote, according to their words, doing what was not lawful uh, on the Sabbath is really kind of a, a strange context. Because the truth is, what they were doing really was perfectly lawful. I mean, it wasn't like they were stealing grain from anyone. There is a provision in the law uh, back in, I think it's Deuteronomy, and I'm going to try and find it for you here. I had it marked out. It's Deuteronomy chapter 23 in verse 25. It says, If you enter into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hands, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. 
And then the next verse, 26, says, Now if you enter into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes at your pleasure, but you shall not put any in your container. I love this about the, the Mosaic law. It was, it was, as God's provision was, a merciful law, that if you were hungry, or if you really needed something, you could enter into your neighbor's field and you could, you could take some of the grains and pluck them and, and, and eat them. And, or, or a vineyard, you could pluck a few grapes and eat them. Now today, we're so, we're so private and we're so territorial and we think, you know, we, we put guards around, our, our, literally around our, our businesses, our vineyards, uh, our grain fields to make sure nobody trespasses, to make sure nobody, we have fences, if you will, that, to guard them. Uh, and, and in that day, that wasn't the case. The law was a merciful law. And, and even though that was somebody else's property, you were allowed to go on and you were allowed to eat it if you were hungry. I mean, let's face it, you got to be pretty hungry to want to pluck some heads of grain and just eat those. Uh, I remember as a little boy, I want to tell you this story because it vividly came back to me as a little boy in Newton, where I grew up, Newton, Kansas. We grew up about a block away. At the end of the block was a railroad uh, station, a depot. It was for freight. It wasn't passenger line. It was the Missouri Pacific lines, and and there was a, there were always boxcars parked there, and we would go down and play. I mean, we were the original boxcar kids. I mean, we played on those boxcars and some of the greatest play times and bouncing around inside those box, especially the boxcars that had big rolls of foam in them that were headed for some kind of factory to put in furniture. I'm sure. Uh, we I mean that was a great fun just bouncing around inside those now. We didn't think a thing about it being dangerous. You know, suppose another train came along and slammed the door shut and, you know, we'd wake up in Michigan or somewhere if we, if we were still alive. But we didn't, we didn't worry about that. We just played, you know. And the, the guy at the depot, his name was Smitty. Smitty, he knew we played out there. He let us play out there. He probably would have gotten fired if his superiors knew we were doing that. But he was a cool guy and he just... He would have warned us. He, we, we weren't worried about getting shut in one of those boxcars or anything. Now, I don't, don't want my, I didn't want my children to do that. And, but it's, so it may not have been too wise, but it was fun. Uh, but in the process, there were lots of cars that had grain and specifically wheat. And I remember seeing the wheat. There were uh, kind of the, the, some of it, you know, it was all uh, sometimes uh, in shocks, or I think that's what they'd call them, gathered together, you know, like the shocks of wheat. And uh, sometimes we would pick the grain heads, you know, you could see the stock and there was the grain head, and we'd pick those grain heads and kind of rub them in our hands and the chaff or the, the hairy things, those, those little pieces you don't want to eat that, that cover it, just kind of fall off and we would rub them and eat it. And I'd say, we'd think, hey, this is what they make bread out of. This is wheat, you know, what does wheat taste like? And, and I can remember, it wasn't all that satisfying. I mean, we didn't do it very often because it wasn't fun. Now, if there was a vineyard nearby, we probably would have eaten a lot of grapes, but that wasn't the case. But this, you know, it wasn't that sad. You gotta be really hungry to want to eat somebody else's grain right off of the stock. Now, we don't know if this was a cornfield or a wheat field or sorghum or something like that. The word in the Greek is literally a word that says uh, stekus, and it just means the head, the head portion, okay? And Sylvia asked, what was the Deuteronomy chapter? It was chapter 23. 
verses 25 and 26. Thanks for that question. And please, anyone, ask a question. Enter into the dialogue. I love to invite you into the dialogue. Just, just ask a question. It doesn't all have to be about me uh, teaching here. We learn together. So you challenge me as well. And, and even later on, after this video is over with and somebody's watching it, you can leave a comment or a question on this thread and, and just keep the dialogue alive as we learn together. But uh, it wasn't very satisfying eating that stuff. So we don't know if they're eating grain or corn. The King James Bible actually says corn. And several commentators say that. Although looking up the word in the Greek, there's absolutely no reason to know that it might be corn. It uh, could have just as easily been wheat or something like that. In fact, I think it was probably wheat. I mean, when I think about plucking a, a head of corn, and yeah, you got to strip the, uh, the uh, what's that called? I, I forget the name. You know, when you, when you shuck corn, the, the husks. Yes, the husks. You got to strip those off, and then there's these little hairs. You kind of rub it full. So it could have been corn. But when I think about which is easier to eat raw, I mean, to bite into a corn cob raw, hmm, it's, it seems a little harsh to me. Whereas the little pieces of grain, eh, pretty easy to eat. Although the corn would be easier to get your fill of. So maybe it was corn. doesn't really matter whether it was corn or wheat. The thing is, it was lawful to do it. But it wasn't lawful to do it on the Sabbath. So there's the rub. They weren't really doing anything wrong by cultural standards, but they were by religious standards because it was the Sabbath. And Luke's very careful to point out that it was the Sabbath. So the Pharisees come and they say, why are you doing what's not lawful? And, and I love Jesus' style. Don't you just love his style? He, I think, Jesus, I, I think you know, we don't always want to think about Jesus this way. We don't want to always think about his sense of humor or sarcasm or something like that. But he was, he was human just like the rest of us. And, and he was divine, of course, but still human, all fully human. And I hear sarcasm in this. I really do. I mean, he's talking to Pharisees. And he says to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? Well, that's not a rhetorical question. That's a sarcastic comment. Of course they read what David did. They knew that. They've read the whole Mosaic Law. They've got it memorized, probably. Their tradition is the one that wrote much of the Talmud the law, you know, uh, that's extrapolated from the Mosaic law. There's the rabbinic law and there's the Mosaic law. And so they're, they're dealing with, he's dealing with learned people who know the law very well. And he sarcastically just kind of says, have you not read what he did? Now, here's the point, David, the story is found in first Samuel. If you look back in first Samuel, uh, chapter 21, is it? Got it in my notes somewhere? Yeah, verse chapter 21. David is on the run from King Saul. And he's tired. And his men are tired. And they fear for their lives. And the only place they find shelter, who knows where they've been on the run, but they make it into where the, the tabernacle is. And they enter into the tabernacle and into the holy place. And it says that if you were reading that back in 1 Samuel, the only thing there was to eat was the bread, the showbread, it was called. What is the showbread? Well, again, if we look back into the Old Testament and we do a little bit of research, we find in uh, the book of Leviticus. Now, this is Leviticus chapter 24. It talks about the showbread. 
that talks about the carrying of the lampstand in the holy place. Remember, the tabernacle had three sections, just like the temple. The back most holy part, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant stood, partitioned by the curtain. Only the high priest could go in once a year. Outside of that was the area, a partitioned area called the holy place. This is where the priests did most of their work. Um, and there is this golden lampstand, of which we read about here in chapter 24 of Leviticus, and the showbread, a golden table laid out where 12 loaves of bread were placed every week. Let, let's read about it here in, in Leviticus. Let's give you a little background. Chapter 24. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel to bring pure oil, to bring you pure oil, He's talking to Moses here, to bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light, to make the lamps burning continually. Outside the veil in the tabernacle of testimony, Aaron and his sons shall keep it burning from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be an ordinance forever in your generations. Upon the pure lampstand, you shall burn the lamps before the Lord until morning. So there is this vigil that, that God is directing that is kept. And I love it's about the priests, but it's also about the people. You see the cooperative work of the people of God. The church is laity and clergy. And in, in, in a sense, we're all just laity, just in different offices. And one of those offices is clergy. And the priests, the priestly office. And it's the people's work to bring the oil and give it to the priests and the priests' work to keep it burning. I love that, that beautiful uh, symbolism of the work of the people of God working together to bring about true worship of God. Now it goes on in verse 5 to say, You shall also take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two-tenths of an epaph shall be in each cake. You shall set them as two deposits, six loaves in each deposit, on the pure table before the Lord. There's a pure, holy table there. Then you shall put pure frankincense and salt on each deposit, that it may be on the bread for a memorial offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath it shall be placed before the Lord continually in the presence of the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. It shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat these things in a holy place. For this is most holy to him, meaning Aaron, from the things sacrificed to the Lord as a perpetual ordinance. There's a lot going on here. Let's talk about it for a minute. Besides the continual light on the lampstand, and that's perpetual, it says, forever, to be done. That is the again, we see the symbolism in the New Testament. Jesus is the light of the world. The New Testament teaches us that. Specifically, John's writing teaches that. And now we see the bread, the show bread, or the the Hebrew word here. Um, I didn't write it in my notes. Lechem Hapanim is is it means face bread. It's continually before the face of the Lord. This bread was to show forth the face of the Lord, is to show forth the presence of God. Now, the only ones who could eat it 
were Aaron and his sons. In other words, the priests. So throughout the nation of Israel and their history, every week this special recipe bread was made, 12 loaves placed in the holy place on the holy table on the Sabbath. Aaron and the sons would, and all the priests thereafter, would take the other 12 loaves and eat it. When they replace the new one, they eat the old one. Now, have you ever eaten seven-day-old bread sitting out in the open like that? It'd be dry, wouldn't it? it? Might not even be good, especially in the different climates and things. But this bread, it was considered miraculous. There's incredible... Again, probably legends and things, but, but miraculous stories around the showbread and how it was, it was always eaten. Now, there were a lot of priests as time grew. So they, as the priesthood grew, I'm sure they got less and less, less piece of it all the time to where it became probably just a morsel. But the idea was it was holy for them to eat this bread. What, what are you hearing when, when you hear this? You can throw in a comment if somebody hears it. What do you hear? What does this remind you of when you, uh, when you hear this? And I'm trying to monitor this also on my laptop just to see if I can see any, uh, any of the questions that come, if you have some, or thoughts. Uh, there it is. Okay, good. Um, but So feel free to put one. What do you hear? Of course, the New Testament tells us Jesus is the bread of life. And bread is being eaten in the Old Testament by the priests. Now, today, we all eat the bread of life. It's called Holy Communion. It is the the bread that is miraculously, for us, the body of Christ. And Paul says that in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, just right out, is not this bread a sharing in the body of Christ? Is not this cup a sharing in the blood of Christ? Um, and Sylvia put a comment, do not throw anything holy away. Boy, I love that. That's exactly right. This bread is holy to the Lord. It's consecrated to the Lord. Good good job, Sylvia. Don't throw it away. Um, in my own ministry, I was, well, I won't say I was trained, but, you know, ordained in the Church of the Nazarene. I work in, in the Methodist Church now, um, the United Methodist Church, but, and, I, and I work with a lot of churches in, in an ecumenical settings, and I respect all traditions, but I was, I won't say I was trained that way, because literally I wasn't trained that way by, by the Church of the Nazarene, but it is my personal theology, and I made it my practice to never throw away either the bread or the juice. It wasn't wine, but you know the fruit of the vine. I never threw them away. What was what was uh, left over? The bread needed to be consumed, and because once it was consecrated, it was holy. It was given. It was set apart. It was sacred. Don't throw it away. And and the and the juice need to be drank. So. I don't know if there's any other, uh, you know, some other pastors on this from time to time. Uh, and I don't know if that's your practice, but it's my practice. And, and I think uh, I felt a conviction of it. So, you know, what we don't have is we don't have a bunch of set laws like they did. Okay. Because, again, what we're going to learn in this hour is that the law, specifically the law of the Sabbath, is for man, 
uh, is is the man is it's it's for man, not man, for the Sabbath. We're going to learn that. So Sylvia said, as you taught us when we served communion. Yes, I taught a group of communion servers in the church there in Wichita. I taught them to be uh, to take the holy consecrated communion out to the shut-ins, uh, which is is biblical as well. Uh, the, that was part of the the work of the deacons in the early church to visit the shut-ins and to take with them a portion. And so uh, I taught them, don't throw it away. Treat it with respect and honor. This is holy unto the Lord. So uh, what I want, I wanted you to see that in the, uh, in the Old Testament there and come back to this setting here. So David is in, David and his men on the run come in, they eat the bread. They're not supposed to do that, but they did it. And what Jesus is pointing out here, because they needed to do it, and what Jesus is pointing out here is that the need of humanity is greater than the need for just keeping a rule. We even burned the napkin if we used it to clean up a spill. That's correct. Anything we had to, we had the, the you had to take special care of the napkins, everything around it. Um, Never, ever, ever pour the juice or the wine out into a drain. All drains lead to the sewer. That would be unthinkable. <laughs> uh, God forgive us. Um, but so always drink it. And if you can't drink it, pour it upon the ground so that it's organic and it's natural and returns to the earth. Um, so little side there. David and his men did what then was unthinkable. I mean, it was sacrilegious what they did. But what, da what Jesus is pointing out here in so many words is you guys forgave David, not these actual men. They weren't alive 500 years earlier, but, but meaning the people of Israel and the leaders of Israel, allowed, they, they revered, they went on to make David their king. They went on to make David. He's, you know, s you know second or third or fourth in command of the holy tribes of the Old Testament. You I mean, you got Moses and Abraham and you know, David is this man after God's own heart. It's through his line that Jesus as Messiah reigns. I mean, David, even for all of his sins and faults, is still revered by the people. But yet they want to literally crucify Jesus and his men for doing something as simple as stopping to eat when they're hungry. By doing something that's very lawful, eating the grains out of another person's field is very lawful. As long as you heard in the Old Testament, as long as you didn't put a sickle to it, then you weren't considered working. You were just doing it for your hands. So they were literally, they were breaking no less than three laws. No less than three laws they were th theoretically breaking. One, by picking it, they were working. By rubbing it, they were threshing. And by letting the chaff blow away, they're winnowing. Okay, so it's three laws, specific laws that they're breaking in that sense. But, but he's saying you just have to understand and in Mark's version, if we read this story in Mark chapter 2, Mark actually says those words where Jesus, in Mark 2, 22, I think he says, Jesus said, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Sabbath is something good and holy made for our benefit, not something that literally destroys us because we cannot keep it. Or there comes a, a testing moment where maybe, as we're going to see in this next 
incidents, something needs to be done that's good and pure and holy. And you got a choice. Do it or respect the law of the Sabbath. Which is it going to be? So Jesus, of course, does it. They were hungry. They needed to eat. Jesus did it. In the second incidence, there's a man that needs healing. Jesus does it. And this is not the only time we're going to read about Jesus healing on the Sabbath, of course. There are others. Let's look at that second incidence, too. Um, because in that second incidence, where Jesus walks into a synagogue, it's again, it's a Sabbath. It tells us, Luke's very careful to say it's a Sabbath again. And as he walks in, he... Uh, it, Luke tells us that there is in the Sabbath already this man whose right hand is withered. Okay, that means that we don't know exactly. It, it just It's totally useless. It probably looks crippled. And, of course, the right hand was the predominant hand, and more people are right-handed than left hand. It represents being able to work, and he couldn't, so he's truly probably disabled. And, and he's in the synagogue. No doubt he's heard about Jesus' miraculous healings. No doubt he wants Jesus to heal him. And that's why this whole story has been told by Luke. Because Luke knows and has heard that this man wanted Jesus to heal him. Who wouldn't? Dustin, good to have you with us today. And, and, and so it says here that the scribes and the Pharisees watched him. That's verse 7. I mean, these guys are everywhere, are they not? I mean, they're watching, they're walking through a grain field and stopping to eat. <laughs> they happen to see Jesus and his disciples, right? They're following them everywhere, watching their every move. And so now they're in the synagogue watching Jesus again. And they're, it just says, they're, they're trying to catch him. They're going to see, I wonder if he'll heal that withered man's hand, that man's withered hand. I wonder if they'll do that. I wonder if he will. Because they know then they've got him again, breaking the law of the Sabbath. And it says here that Jesus in verse 8, because he knew their thoughts, he knew their hearts were hard, he knew they were trying to catch him, he knew they didn't believe in what he was about to do was lawful or good or right. And so he just calls them out. He says, first he calls the man, come here and stand. And the man, so he calls them out into the front, probably wherever Jesus was in the synagogue, there was a crowd. And he's there and he's usually teaching. And so he calls the man to where he is. And he has him stand here beside him. And then it says, he says to them, you'll notice in verse 9, and Jesus said to them, meaning to these Pharisees that are there to test him. He says, I ask you, is it lawful on a Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or destroy it? Jesus is not asking a rhetorical question. This question deserves an answer. And of course, it, it, it says, and Jesus said to them, is this to, a lot to destroy it? And it just says, and he looked around on them all. And then he says to the man with the withered hand, he doesn't really wait long for their answer because he knows they're not going to answer. Uh, clearly the answer is, it's okay to do good. Clearly the answer, just like, David did when he had to eat that bread. Clearly it's okay to save a life, not destroy it, or not let it die specifically. I mean, there, there, were, there are actually, if you study the, 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 the uh, rabbinic laws of the time, they actually had 
uh, I won't call them loopholes, provisions, we would call them loopholes in their laws that, you know, if your ox fell in a ditch, you needed that ox for your living and it was going to perhaps die if it was stuck in that ditch or something. Even if it was Sabbath, you could get it out. I mean, there was loopholes, there was provisions. What could be a greater thing to do than to save a life or to heal a life, to heal a man? And so that's what Jesus is setting up here. And, and in their silence, they're admitting they don't believe. They, they don't believe that it's right for him to do this. And so Jesus just says to the young man, whether he's young or old, we do not know, I guess. But he says to the man, stretch out your arm, stretch out your, stretch out your hand. And so he did so, and his hand was restored. He, Jesus didn't have to take hold of the hand. He didn't have to rub it. He didn't have to say any magic words. Jesus just commanded. The miracle was in the man's obedience to stretch out his hand. And there it was, pure for all to see, whole and working for all to see. And it says that these Pharisees are so filled with rage. Now, my word here in this, the, the RSV says they're filled with fury. Um, some versions say filled with folly. Some say rage. Some say madness. The Greek word here, uh, anoia, A-N-O-I-A, anoia, is a word that literally means either anger, rage, madness, or foolishness such that you just, you're, you're out of your mind. You're not using a right mind. We're reminded of Proverbs chapter 19, verse 13, that says, a man's folly, there's that same word again, his, the folly. A man's folly brings his way to ruin and his heart rages against the Lord. So it is utter foolishness that these Pharisees are thinking the way they're thinking. It doesn't make sense. Of course it's right to save a life. Of course it's right to do good on the Sabbath. Not to make good wait just because it's a Sabbath. Now that does not mean nowhere in Jesus' ministry and life did he disrespect the Sabbath. So we li there, there is this tension, a healthy tension that I think is good to hold in our lives. Um, let's talk just a little bit about that. In our, in our culture, 21st century America, and having grown up in the last half of the last of the, the quote, great 20th century, that era that, that made so much advancement in, in, for humanity in, in modern times, uh, growing up in the Midwest, small town culture, the idea of Sabbath rest was, in, in the culture I learned, and probably you too, uh, was you don't do work on, in that in, in our time, we, we thought of it as Sunday. But the idea was we were barring the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath is the Sabbath is the Sabbath. It is Friday to Saturday. That has never changed. Few Christians out there that think that's the way you have to worship, like the Seventh-day Adventists. But the reality is uh, early Christianity clearly chose to worship God on Sunday which was the day of the resurrection, to honor Christ, whom they are worshiping as God. And the early Christians were Jews. They went to the temple on Sabbath. They participated in temple worship. They continued to be Jews, but they were Messianic Jews. They were Jews who believed in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
And so that required more worship. I mean, that, that deserved more worship. That, their heart wanted to worship. And so they would gather to talk about Messiah. They would gather to worship Messiah. They would gather to celebrate the memorial of his death, that beautiful remembrance of Holy Communion, always on the Sabbath, on their, uh, I mean, on their Sunday services. So in our culture, we, I just grew up, I thought Sabbath, oh, that was old. It's Sunday. Sunday's the Sabbath. We're not supposed to work because everything was closed on Sunday. I mean, everything. You couldn't buy anything hardly where I grew up on a Sunday. There were laws on the books that said you could not open your store. Gradually, of course, those began to give way. I can remember in my family, even my, my mother teaching us, you know, well, you know, this is a day of rest. You need to kind of, you know, we'd want to go out and play and eventually she'd let us go play. But, you know, I can remember some, you know, this is a day of rest. You need to just, you know, rest and think about holy things, think holy thoughts. But a little kid can only do that so long. He needs to go out and play. But uh, we had, we had these laws that eventually gave way. And so now we have anything goes. Uh, now, uh, We've come to a place in church, and this is going to sound a little controversial. I'm not trying to be controversial, but I'm trying to call things out. Okay, we've come to a place where Sunday doesn't even matter anymore. Uh, churches are starting up new church plants. They'll worship on Wednesday night or Thursday night or Monday night or Tuesday night or whenever they can. And there's nothing in and of itself wrong with that. But there is... If we don't hold some honor and love and value for the day of the resurrection, I think we're missing something. Now, I don't have a problem with uh, with doing things on the, the day of the Lord on Sunday, as long as we are holding them in our heart to be worshipful to God, to be restful to him, to have that day of rest that we all need, that Jesus showed us we need, and to have time to worship Almighty God, then I think that's okay. Uh, I mean, we don't have to just sit in our house and be afraid to take so many steps or be afraid to cook a meal. But if we treat the day like any other day, how are we really honoring God? How are we honoring the commandment that says to remember the Sabbath? And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's telling us to remember the Sabbath, but to remember that that Sabbath is for your benefit. It's to help you if you will rest, if you will worship, if you will do my, if you will honor my word, if you will honor my ways, if it will, it will strengthen you. It will nourish you. It will build up your life. So the, the Sabbath concept, Sabbath rest concept, is, is very much alive and needed, and it always will be until Jesus returns, but it is very much overlooked, unfortunately and sadly, in our world today, even by Christians. So I, I want to kind of bring this down to uh, kind, of, kind of a close. What are we learning in these first 11 verses? We looked at two incidents in which Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees. In both of them, Jesus has basically told them they're wrong, and he showed them they're wrong, gave them an incidence from their own past where David broke the rules and it was okay because it was for the good of humanity. And he's showing how he's going to heal this man, and he heals him because it's okay, because it's for the good of humanity. And it does nothing but to increase their hatred for him. 
And I want us to think about this. Nobody knew the scriptures better than the Pharisees. And I mean no one. No, they, they, they had it memorized. They knew the Psalter. They knew the Mosaic Law. They, I mean, they tried to, to live this to the letter. And it just goes to show that you can, you can know the Bible. <laughs> you can know the Bible frontwards to back. You can memorize it. You can quote it. You can study it and still not get it as it's meant to be. People do it every day. Leaders do it every day. Pastors do it every day. Teachers do it every day. It's sad. And here, here's, here's how we know that's proven. So many times, here's a problem in our culture. So many times we take, and I'm going to quote William Barclay, loosely quote him, William Barclay, a uh, Bible scholar of the 20th century. He said, so often we take our theology to the Bible rather than from the Bible. In other words, we, we use the Bible as a justification for our way of thinking, our way of doing, our own theology, rather than really just letting our theology come from the very words of the Lord. All of Scripture is inspired, uh, Paul writes to Timothy. All of it is theological in the sense that it speaks to our lives if we will hear it. Not the way the Pharisees heard it, but the way we need to hear it. As it's Jesus speaking. I want to tell you a story here to close that William Barclay tells in his commentary on this on this particular passage of scripture. Barclay tells of a bishop in the church in, uh, well, Barclay was a member of the Church of England, but I'm Church of Scotland, which is part of the Anglican communion. He tells of a bishop named Butler, Bishop Butler. And when Bishop Butler was dying, he knew he was dying. He began to be afraid. He, he found anxiety and, and no peace and was was uh, very upset about the concept of his impending death. And it says that his chaplain, the, the bishop had a chaplain, in other words, the, the, the preacher that came to him and cared for his needs. And the chaplain comes to him and says, why are you so upset, Lord? The bishop, you know, the Lord Bishop. And the bishop said, I, I have no assurance I have no, I don't know, I'm, I'm afraid to die. And, and the chaplain says, but do you not know? You, you're, you're the bishop. Do you not know that Jesus is a savior? And the bishop says, yes, but is he a savior for me? And he, the bishop, <laughs> I mean, that sounds like an odd question for a bishop to ask. But then the chaplain said to him, of course he's a savior for you. For he says in his word that if any man comes to me, I will never cast him out. And the bishop said, I've heard, I have heard and preached those words all my life. But now in the face of death, I hear them from you differently. I hear them. Jesus said, I will never cast you out if you believe. And he said, the bishop said, now I die in peace. 
now I die in peace. What a beautiful story that illustrates to us how we can know the word, but yet not know it. I wonder what there is in your heart today as, as we kind of close our time of study. I, I'm, we are living in difficult times. I talk about this every week, I think, because we need to. Everything we know as normal is being challenged in this time and age that we're living in. And it's being challenged rapidly. And it's changing rapidly. We need to know what our foundation is. We need to know who Jesus Christ is. We need to know that he is a savior. And he's a savior of those who will come to him. And he will never cast you out. A whole lot more. I could take that and launch into a sermon, but I don't have time, and that's not the purpose of this Bible study. But I want to encourage you today, whatever you're going through, whatever you're feeling, whatever, what, I mean, there, are, there is so much depression. It's off the charts through this pandemic. There is suicide, depression, the need for people to get counsel. It's off the charts. The things that are happening in homes, the homes that are falling apart, divorce rates. I mean, we've been at this six months, and now we're seeing the numbers are escalating unbelievably. This is not God's plan for us. God did not plan for us to live in isolation. He did not plan for us to live in seclusion. He did not plan for us to be isolated from our churches. We must find a way to really, truly connect with the Word of God in this time. I know you can't control what your church is doing, but I'm telling you, we've got to, it, it's time. There's enough. We're getting close to a vaccine. We're getting close to a lot of things. We're learning as the numbers of people are tested in this virus, of course there are more positives. It's going off the chart, the numbers of cases, because that's what viruses do. But the number of deaths is declining. And the numbers of the deaths still worldwide and locally is still less than a half of 1%. Have there been great deaths and great tragedies? Absolutely there has. And they're horrific and they're tragic. But we can't live in fear. We have to find a way forward because there's so much work to be done for the gospel. So much work to be done for the gospel. And I'm... I don't believe God, I mean, I'm speaking from a pastor's frustration that can't even call people together and do some big revival that I want to do and that I feel called to do. But God wants it done. And we'll find a way. We're going to do it within, we're, we're, we're trying to be good citizens of the state and we're obeying the orders. We're wearing our masks. I've got mine right over here. But I'm telling you, this isn't God's plan. It's not God's way and it's not God's punishment. It's part of a fallen world, and there are powers that be that would like nothing more than to see this happen, that to see the churches of Jesus Christ shut down, that to see that the people uh, in economic turmoil, and that's sad reality. And we've got we've to pray, and we've got to ask for the healing. I see a comment here. Sylvia said, pray for healing of our nation. We need to heal. Yes, we need to pray and believe in the healing power of God. For our nation and stop taking our politics to the Bible stop taking our theology to the Bible and let's just rest on the Word of God 
What does the Word of God say about loving others? What does the Word of God say about how we're to live in respect for others? What does the Word of God say about not taking violence to the streets? I mean, there's all kinds of things we need to hear from the Word of the Lord. So, I'm getting a little preachy at you, but this is serious business. So thank you for spending time with me, almost an hour. Thank you for doing this. And, and whoever hears this, God bless you for listening. Pray, pray for the healing of our nation. Second Chronicles is never more true than today. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. I will hear from heaven and heal their land. And part of that, that humbling part, that's where we have to really bow our theologies and bow our political ideas and bow our way of thinking is right and to whatever God says. Not what a particular party says, not what a particular government says, not what a particular doctor even says. We have to be able to be, to be students of the word so that the word becomes our living being. Well, thank you. God bless you. Let me pray for you as we close and let us pray truly for the healing of our nation. Father God, thank you for each life represented on this Bible study today and who will ever hear it. Father God, show us your beautiful, holy, abiding, fulfilling, nourishing presence. Be for us the bread of life and the light of the world. Show us the light, Father, to help heal our nation, to heal our land. Help us to come back to serving you and doing what is right in your eyes. My words fail me, but you hear our hearts. And so heal us now, we pray. Bless those who are listening and let us go but not depart from your presence now. In Jesus' strong name I pray, the name of our Savior, your Son, Father, who lives with you in the Holy Spirit as one God forever and ever and unto the ages of ages. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for joining me today.